0: You can turn to page 11 in your worship folder, and I want to read for us the passage that I'll uh, preach to you from tonight, from Mark chapter 6. And uh, I'll just read it, and then I'll tell you about it. It's, uh, it's sort of Game of Thronesy, so we'll just hang in there. This is God's Word. King Herod. Heard of it, that is Jesus' ministry, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So we are looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And the passage that we come to tonight uh, that we just read... You can rest assured, it will never make it into the Disney library of movies. (laughs) This is much more, could be an episode or several from the Game of Thrones. (laughs) It's full of adultery. It's full of death. It's full of lust. It's the kind of story that makes church people cringe, and I think we have to ask, why on earth does Mark even include this story in his gospel? And not only that, but then why does he include it here at this point in the story? And I, I just have to say up front, this is one of the harder passages I've come to in a long, long time. Uh, perhaps you and your line of work find yourself in similar situations at times, and you're scratching your head, and you don't, you're not sure what to do with it. Um, Pastors have that problem too. There are things in the Bible that, no matter how much you study and how much training you've had, they 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 can stump you. And so, uh, we're going to work our way through this, and I'm going to do my very best to try to help you understand what this story has to do with us as followers of Jesus here in 2015. So. Why does Mark include this story? There, there are at least two reasons. And the first reason is this, that there are only two passages in Mark's gospel that are not about Jesus. The first one is in chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, and it's John the Baptist, where he is presented, Mark presents him as the forerunner to Jesus' ministry. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus. And this is the second passage, and it's also about John the Baptist. And what Mark is trying to tell us is, in the same way that Jesus, that John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus' ministry in chapter 1, he's also telling us here that John the Baptist's death is the prequel to Jesus' death that here we get a window into where the story is headed. And not only that, the second reason that Mark includes this story, not just in the gospel, but in this specific place, he, in effect, tells us the reason because he situates the story right between when Jesus sends out the twelve, earlier in chapter 6, verses 7 to 13 and their return in verse 30. Strangely, it seems to us, Mark inserts this incredibly graphic, tragic story about John the Baptist and his execution right between sending out his 12 disciples to further his ministry. Why does he do that? What is he trying to say? What he's trying to tell us is there is an inseparable link between discipleship and death, between mission and martyrdom, that there is a cost to following Jesus. And in a couple chapters, we could could borrow from Jesus, when he says in chapter 8, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here at Mark puts this story not only to help us to see where the story is headed, but also to, to help us to see how does your, if you are a follower of Jesus, how does your following of him fit into this story? Especially when it's costly. And severely costly even perhaps to the point of losing your own life. Now, here in the United States, in the West, that's not something that you and I have firsthand experience of on a day-to-day basis. But if you begin to talk to fellow Christians around the world, what we read of here in this story is an di- almost daily experience. And so at the very heart of, of this story of following Jesus... As we remember back to chapter one, Jesus' message was: "The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news." That at the very heart of following Jesus is responding to Him and His message, and that looks like forsaking everything that you built, you were building your life on, and instead turning and putting all of your trust and confidence in Him. That's a very heart. Of what it means to follow Jesus. But at the very same time, following Jesus means stepping into the most rebellious and broken parts of other people's lives as well. And as this story shows, sin does not die easily. It fights very hard. And to follow Jesus means being willing to bear the brunt of other people's sin... Because that is what he came to do for us, and so this story, I think, among a number of things that that we could pursue in this story, it set, sheds light on, on three dimensions of sin that are illustrated, or typified, or um, laid out for us in the story of Herod and his interaction with John the Baptist. And I want you to show you these that the three facets here are these the there is we see the love of sin and what that looks like we see the snare of sin and then lastly we see the wages of sin so first let's look here together at the love of sin here we have this story that that begins really by mark reiterating what we saw in another form earlier in chapter 6 that there's a lot of Speculation about who is Jesus, rumors about Jesus. Is he Elijah? Or is he one of the great prophets? Or perhaps he's even John the Baptist. And we'll see Jesus ask these very same questions later in chapter 8. What Mark is telling us again and again, that there is a lot of confusion about Jesus. In other words, we really need to get that right. But here Herod discovers, hears about this Jesus. And like everyone else, has his own views. And his view here is that, well, Jesus, given what he's doing, he's healing people, he's calming storms, he's raising a dead girl from the grave. This must be John the Baptist. Raised from the dead. And we learn here for the first time, how it is that John the Baptist died? We haven't heard about John the Baptist since verse 14 in chapter 1 where in a very passing comment Mark says after John was arrested and then goes on to describe Jesus' public ministry. And that's all we hear until this point. And we discover now how is it that John met the end of his life, that Herod beheaded him. How does that happen? Well, John had been going to Herod. Mark doesn't tell us how he got that entree with King Herod, but he did. And he was telling him, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod, who is the son of Herod the Great that we read of in Luke chapter 2. Herod the Great had four sons. And Herod Philip was one of his sons. And the Herod Antipas, this is the Herod that we have in this story... Herod, here in this story, took his brother Philip's wife to be his own wife. He had committed adultery. And not only that, she was actually his niece. I'll spare you the details. The Herodian dynasty is one of great uh, intrigue and and inner strife and debacle all over the place. The historian Josephus lays it out for you. But he had taken a woman he should not have taken and John the Baptist is calling him out and confronting him about it. But notice here, John the Baptist, Herod will not listen. And I want to show you what I mean by that because it would be easy to miss this because Mark actually tells us that Herod did listen. That he actually enjoyed hearing John the Baptist. But the reason he doesn't is that he loves his sin. He would rather live independently from God and do his own, live his own way and find his own fulfillment and his own plans rather than hear what John is saying. And what does it look like? What does love of sin look like? The very first ingredient of what that looks like is it looks like putting off listening to God's word. Notice what Herod does here because of Herodias and her disdain. John the Baptist and for his own love of his own sin he puts him in prison he puts off listening to John the Baptist's message he puts it off but notice like I said he we have this weird phrase here in verse 20 it tells us that he was greatly perplexed by John but he heard him gladly you see love of sin also finds great inner turmoil There's no peace, ever. There's constant conflict and a warring of desires. Now, that's a familiar experience whether you find yourself to be a Christian or not. It's not something that folks who don't trust in Jesus experience uniquely. But here we see Herod experiencing this inner turmoil and conflict. He's greatly perplexed. He doesn't know what to make of it, and yet he hears him gladly. He even fears him. He respects John the Baptist. And what we have here is that Herod, he puts off listening to God's word. What does that look like? How do you begin to see that either in your own life or in the life of somebody else? Putting off listening while still listening, what that means is that you're a hearer of his word, but you're not a doer of his word. That is what love of sin amounts to. When you love sin more than God and his word, you become a hearer of it, but never a doer of it. And at its most fundamental, deepest level, what we see here with Herod and even Herodias and their responses to his message, at the very deepest level of their lives is a commitment to live independently of God. So you see the tendency to put off listening to God's word while for Herod uh, and Herodias even to some degree even though she would like him dead to put off listening to him is a way of ignoring him. of Forgetting about it. But the way the story unfolds putting off listening to God's word in no way makes sin any less dangerous. Let me show you What I mean by that by telling you, showing you about the snare of sin. In verse 21, Mark continues talking about and and telling us, recounting the, the narrative of leading to John the Baptist's death, when he says, But an opportunity came. Now you have to think for a moment, whose opportunity? Look in verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. In verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Here is the snare of sin. Herod has already demonstrated his indifference at best to God's word and his claim on his life, whether he would like to acknowledge it or not. But a party... It's time to have a party. His birthday has come. And he, he invites the elites of his own kingdom. His nobles and his military commanders as well as the elites from Galilee. And he has this party. And it's a party that from the, the, the way the story unfolds seems to just devolve into your worst uh, version of a fraternity party. And it's even makes the skin crawl because... He actually delights in the entertainment of his wife's daughter. Something really twisted about this story. It's a story of extortion, of even abuse, of mistreatment of a young woman. And he delights in this so much so that he makes this vow to her that he will give her whatever she wants and she takes that vow and goes back to her mother and says what should I do what should I ask for and at that moment she sees an opportunity and she says ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter and so Herod's daughter comes back in and asks for John the Baptist's head and he's trapped He's ensnared. Look in verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry. And I don't think he means he's sorry about what's really about to happen to John the Baptist. I think what he's sorry about is he's trapped. And there's no way out. And he says he was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. See, he would rather lose John the Baptist, than his own reputation, his own standing, his pride is on the line, his word is on the line, his extravagant party is on the line. And what I want you to see are two things, among many that we could pull out, two things that we learn about the snare of sin. That sin never exists in isolation. It never exists in isolation. While the the earlier part of this story presents to us Herod as, as an adulterer, here we have Herod as a proud, cowardly man who is in love with his power and cannot admit that he's done something wrong, even if it would have meant saving someone's life. That sin never exists in isolation. But not only that, sin always leads to slavery, to bondage. It's like addiction. Perhaps you have personal experience with an addiction or you know someone who has. And one of the telltale signs of an addict is a person who doesn't believe they're addicted. And closely connected to that is a deeply held belief In the addict. That they are not the problem. Everyone else is the problem. Or their circumstances are the problem. But they are not the problem. You see that's a metaphor for sin. Herod did not see. Our great temptation is to think. That sin really isn't that big of a deal. That you can somehow not listen to God and it will not hurt you. But Herod is this vivid story that sin is never exists in an isolated way. It's a snare that left untended to will lead you to become an addict and you won't even know it. See, the tragedy of this story is how the love of sin and the snare of sin lead to the wages of sin. You see, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, talking about a similar theme, teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And that is exactly what we see here, but it has a very important twist that I want you to see. Notice in verse 20, Herod. Mark, describing to us, telling us Herod's perspective on on John the Baptist, says that Herod thought that he was a righteous and holy man. See, here we have in this story that the one who deserves death doesn't die. And the one who doesn't deserve death does die. And it's precisely at this point where we, Mark wants you to see, this is how John the Baptist lifts our attention to the gospel. It's as if he were fast-forwarding to the cross for us. That that is essentially the gospel message. That the one who deserves to die does not die. And the one who doesn't deserve to die does die. That even, notice in the telling of this story... The way that Mark tells the story, he wants you to see the parallel between John the Baptist and his death and then Jesus' death. There are a number, but let me just mention three. That both John the Baptist and Jesus, they're executed by political tyrants who fear them but vacillate and then they finally succumb to social pressure. That both... Jesus and John the Baptist die silently as victims of political intrigue and then corruption. And perhaps most importantly, both of them die as righteous and innocent victims. So what, what are we supposed to see about that? Why would John or Mark include that in his gospel? What he wants you to see is that if you are a follower of Jesus... To follow Jesus means you will bear the brunt of other people's sin. Their love for it, the snare of it, and even the wages of it. Because that's what Jesus came to do for all of those who trust in him. But what he also wants you to see here is that the suffering of Jesus... The suffering of Jesus' followers, it's directly tied to his suffering. John the Baptist follows Jesus. He prepares the way for Jesus. Mark puts this story right in between the first sending of his disciples, his followers, to show us that when you experience suffering, especially in the form of persecution, He wants you to know that you are connected to Jesus. That to be a follower of Jesus means you are on a path from suffering to glory. That that is the path of the Christian life. That your life will begin to bear the imprint of Jesus' life. And it's a path of suffering to glory. Now, why do we need a story like this? First of all, like I said, that the love, the snare, and the wages of sin, those are realities that we all must face in our own lives, but even in the lives of others with whom we have relationships. But secondly, you need to see that no matter how severe the costs For following Jesus, we need to know that our suffering is connected to something bigger than ourselves. That the costs of following Him mirror the same path He took in suffering and dying on the cross. But it doesn't end there. He rose from the dead. He alone has the power to bring an end. To suffering, to persecution, to the trials that you and I face as his followers, even at the hands of other people. And therefore, we can follow him into those painful places for the sake of other people. Because to believe in Jesus, to know that he rose from the dead, means that you will too, that you are secure in him. That God sent at infinite cost to himself his beloved son. And you can rest assured he will never lose you. He will never let you go. That he will be faithful to his promises. That that one day when Jesus comes back. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. For the suffering in and the, in the, in the trial that you know now will be wiped away. The former things will be gone. And you will find yourself face to face with Jesus, your suffering Savior, who went to the cross for you. And now He calls you and I, as His followers, who know that grace, to step into, to even bear the brunt of, other people's love for sin. So that they might know that Jesus too. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, this is a really uh, racy story. Uh, It's even hard to know in all the ways that it actually, uh, how to talk about it. And I pray that you would help us to see how it does two things. That it points us to Jesus. But it also connects our own experience as followers of Jesus. Jesus to him. And Father, we pray as we continue to sing and and as we approach the Lord's table that we would see in this meal our savior who through that bread and wine connects us to him. Father, would you do that for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.